I want to share with you one of the most important moments, not only in the history of the Christian church, but actually in the history of the entire world. It is no exaggeration to say that if the story we're going to focus on this morning had not happened, you and I would not be sitting in a church in England today. This was one of the great changes of direction as the gospel uh, forced its way out of the narrow confines of Judaism. So let me kind of set the story in context for you. There was a man called Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who was serving in the city of Caesarea. Uh, Cornelius had a vision, and Cornelius was a devout man, a God-fearer. And in the vision, God said to him, your prayers have been answered, send uh, down to the city of Joppa, uh, in, in the house of a man called Simon the Tanner, is another man called Simon, Simon Peter, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, ask him to come up to you. Now at the same time as this was happening, Peter uh, was staying in the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, uh, and he decided he needed to pray. And he went up on the flat roof to pray, I guess to get some peace and quiet. While he was there, he got hungry, he asked for some food to be brought up, and he waited so long to be served, which I'm sure will not happen later on this morning. He waited so long to be served that he fell asleep. And as he slept, he had a dream in which a great sheep came down from heaven. And on it was all kinds of animals. And the voice said, take and eat. And Peter, being a good Jew, said, no, I'm not going to do that. These are unclean. And the voice from heaven said, don't call anything I've made unclean. And the vision was repeated three times. Uh, At that point, Peter was woken up by somebody banging on the door of the house, and it was the men who had come down from Cornelius at Caesarea. They were invited in, they had a meal together, they stayed the night, and the next morning, Simon Peter, along with six members of the Christian fellowship at Joppa, went to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. Uh, When they met together, uh, he, he told Cornelius about Jesus And the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius, who of course was not a Jew, who was a Gentile. And so that Peter realized that God was also reaching out to Gentiles. Now, Luke, who tells this story, is a very careful writer. He doesn't waste words, but he actually tells, it's so important that he tells us the story twice. He tells it in chapter 10, like I've outlined it. And then he tells it again in chapter 11, because Peter has to go down to the church at Jerusalem and give a report on all that's happened. And that's where we're going to pick it up in chapter 11, and uh, beginning at verse 1, and it should all come up in the screen. And it reads like this. The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. And I looked into it, and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts and reptiles and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. 
The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. And the Holy Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. And these six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He'll bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, concludes Peter, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance into life. Now, here is Peter at Jerusalem to give a report to the church there. And would you believe it, there's a negative reaction. Some of the Jewish believers were troubled by an issue that would stalk the Christian church in its early years. They were so concerned about this issue that it didn't matter to them that racial barriers had been broken down. They were more concerned about the fact that some religious regulations had been broken. Did you notice that they didn't even begin with a question? Peter, tell us what happened. What they began with was by saying, you went into the house of uncircumcised Gentiles and you ate with them. You know what's happened to these men? They are trapped in their own traditions. They are trapped. These critics of Peter are trapped in their own traditions. Notice three things about them. The first is that they were, they were followers of Jesus. They were men and women who had realized that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of their ancient Jewish faith. They were good people. They were not bad people. They were not the enemies of the gospel. They were not the opposition. They were followers of Jesus. And yet, these followers of Jesus are trapped in their own tradition. Now, I'll tell you why it happened. It happened because they were faithful to their history. They were faithful to their Jewish history. If you know the story of the Jewish people, they were taken into exile. And one of the dangers when they were in exile was that they would be, that their true Jewish faith would be contaminated and, and spoiled by the, the pagan faiths around them and the pagan nations in which they had to live. Uh, and so God gave them at that time uh, a number of, of food laws and, and regulations about table fellowship, who you did eat with and who you didn't. They were all about how they maintained their purity. They were about being separated from pagan customs that would have adulterated and compromised their allegiance to the one true God. 
They were rules that were given for a particular time and a particular place. But they had become increasingly an indication of the kind of holiness that Jesus rejected. See, their kind of holiness, the holiness of the Pharisees, was a holiness that avoided all contact with sinners just in case they would contaminate you. Whereas the holiness of Jesus was the kind of holiness that spilled over onto people. And far from him being contaminated, he made them different and better. And, and you notice in the Gospels that often the quarrel between Jesus and the Pharisees is always their criticism, you ate with sinners. You ate with people who don't keep the law. You see what had happened? For these Jewish believers, these followers of Jesus, faithful as they were to their history, they had become trapped in their traditions. I spent a lot of my time ministering in the Salvation Army until 2006. Uh, Margaret and I were the denominational leaders for the Salvation Army in the northwest of England. Uh, decided it was time to step out of that into a, a different kind of ministry. But I've got a great story. Tony Campola that some of you, if you've been to Spring Harvest, you may have heard Campola. He's got the cheek of old Nick. But he was invited to, to preach at a Salvation Army conference in Canada, which he did. Uh, but at one point, he leaned over the rostrum as only Campola can do, sweating and spitting as he does when he preaches. He's, he's great to watch. And he said to them, Salvation Army, if the 1950s ever come back, you're ready for it. <laughs> you know what? You could say that to lots of denominations and lots of churches. Some of our denominational and church traditions began for very good reasons. But all too easily, they can degenerate into things that define us and keep us to ourselves. You know what happens? And it happens in, in, in churches where there's been a radical movement of the Holy Spirit. All too easily and all too quickly, the leadings of the Spirit become the legalism of our system. The leadings of the Spirit become the legalism of our system. I've got a friend who says, we've sanctified sterility and called it faithfulness. It isn't actually honoring God to go on doing the same things. If they didn't work 50 years ago, there's a fair chance that they probably won't work today. Learning is about doing the right thing not doing the same old things. And you've challenged me today, you've invited me and challenged me to speak about sharing the gospel in our contemporary culture. And these men were trapped in their own traditions, faithful to their history. They were probably as well fearful of their contemporaries. They were worried about what other people would say if they branched out. Again, I had a telephone call from the BBC about 18 months ago. Um, and knowing of my background, they told me they were going to do a, uh, they're going to do a program on the joy strings. Does anybody remember the joy strings? You, you must be even older than you look. You could even be as old as I am. Well, I guess we share a hairstyle. But, 
But you know, the, the Joycelyns were back in the, in the 70s, and it was a, a 60s? 60s, yeah, I'm older than I thought. <laughs> and and they, they, they were really the first Christian rock group to break through. And I remember when they played in a nightclub, the faithful screamed in horror. This is terrible. How can you share the gospel in a nightclub? That's exactly where they should have been sharing the gospel because those people in the nightclub, I don't know whether we noticed, most of them weren't in church on Sunday morning. But we we were fearful of what other people might say. And the danger is that we can be trapped in our own traditions and it prevents us from sharing the gospel in today's culture. But that's the negative stuff out of the way. This is a wonderfully encouraging story because as I said, were it not for this moment in history, you would not be sitting in those seats today because this is when the gospel broke through the confines of Judaism and reaching out to the Gentiles. Most of those early believers assumed that the only people who could be saved were Jews. And they're about to learn something. So we move on from the critics who are trapped in their own traditions to Peter, who is discovering new directions. Now, let me tell you this. We sometimes preach sermons about answered prayer. And sometimes we preach sermons on the more difficult subject of unanswered prayer. Actually, this is a sermon and a story about interrupted prayer. Because Peter's up on the roof doing his prayers and God says, Peter, shut up a minute and just look and listen. Just look and listen. This is a moment when God is going to move Peter in new directions. I want to point out to you four new directions. The first is this, that God has pushed Peter out of Jerusalem into the city of Joppa. Peter was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and we find him in this story in Joppa. Joppa is an ancient walled city and was the principal seaport of Judea about 35 miles from Jerusalem, which was a fair distance in those days. And Joppa was a city that held some very painful memories for Peter and his Jewish countrymen. Because during the Maccabean revolt, 200 Jews had been killed in the city of Joppa in an infamous massacre. But what Peter was learning was that Joppa was not outside of the scope of God's care. And by the time we come to this story today, the gospel has already reached Joppa. And Peter's had to go up and see what's happening in Joppa. God is on the move. And people have come to faith in Christ. There is a little Christian community in Joppa. And just earlier than the incident that we've read today, if you read back to chapter 9, you'll discover that Peter had been instrumental in raising Dorcas from the dead. The power of God was just as real in Joppa as it was in Jerusalem. God is not confined to one nation. 
I remember once hearing somebody pray, God, you can reach even as far as China. Well, of course he can, because he doesn't actually live in Britain. He's a big God. God is not confined to our home church. God is not confined to our particular denomination. Dare I say it, God is not even confined to those of us who march under the banner of evangelicalism. God is stirring up his church. And Peter is pushed out of Jerusalem. And I think God does the same for us. God's at work in the Joppa of our world. Here's a second new direction. Peter is pushed not only out of Jerusalem, but out of his comfort zone. Remember I told you that Peter was staying, and you'll remember this from Sunday school, those of you who went to Sunday school. Peter, Simon Peter, is staying at the house of his namesake, Simon, a man who is a tanner. Now, a tanner was a man who, who, who dealt with, uh, treated the skins of dead animals. And that was an occupation that would have rendered him unclean in the eyes of devout Jews. But Peter is already there. God's already, even before the vision of the, 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 the animals descending on the sheep, even before that, Peter is in the house of Simon the Tanner. God is already pushing him out of his comfort zone. Got to tell you this. If we are serious about sharing the gospel in today's culture, if we are serious about it, it will take us into some uncomfortable places. It will introduce us to some unlikely company. And it will bring us to some unexpected meetings. If we're serious about sharing the gospel in today's culture. I tell people with great pride that I think I can say without any fear of contradiction that not, uh, uh, not only am I the only person who's ever preached at Thomas Risley Church who has appeared on the Jeremy Kyle show. Not only that, I have appeared in the 10-year highlights of the Jeremy Kyle show. It's not much of a show, mind you. I'll tell you why I went on. They were doing a live link with the Westboro Baptist Church in America. Now, you may have seen these people. Um, Louis Theroux did a program on them. The Westboro Baptist Church is a church in Kansas, about 80 members. They're famous for two things. They parade at the funerals of American servicemen with big banners saying, they'll fly all over America to do it with big banners saying, your son is cursed, He's, this is God's punishment on America. Uh, in fact, they played a little video clip on the program of the founder of that church. Remember some years ago there was a campus shooting in America and 30 young students were killed? Well, they played a video clip of the founder of the church saying, we rejoiced in that. Our only regret was it wasn't 30,000 people because God is judging America. And the other thing they're famous for was that they're, they're, they're very unpleasant to gay people. 
very unpleasant. Now on the panel, so we did a live link and there was three members of that church and they were wearing black t-shirts with big white lettering. Forgive me if I tell you what it was. It was God hates fags, it said on it. And, and on the panel in this country, on my right was a woman whose son had been killed in active service on Iraq. And they told her that her son was cursed and he was in hell. They knew that. And on my left was a young fellow who was the publicity officer for the gay and lesbian movement in the northwest of England. I wouldn't even repeat in church what they said to him. And in the middle was me trying to be the sane Christian. Do you know what was, you know, they, they were so angry, these people. And I tried to say to them at one point, God loves all people. And they said, no, he doesn't. God hates us until we repent. It's crazy mixed up theology. God hates you. They, they don't even realize that our repentance is only due to the fact of the good news of God's kingdom that brings us to repentance. And I realized then I didn't want to be part of that kind of thinking. I wanted to be part of a church that was so confident that God loved people, that we would be willing to sit down with all kinds of people in all kinds of places to share the good news of a God of infinite, wonderful love. We need to move out of our comfort zone. That might mean an evening, sat down in the local pub, talking to some people. No, you can do that. I, you know, if you're like me, I'm strictly teetotal. So I can do it with a lemonade. I'm not encouraging anybody to imbibe. For some of us, it might mean the noise of a rock concert. Or it might mean an evening with some neighbors who are not particularly your kind of people. Do you know one of the things that shocks me is how little Christian people know their neighbors often. We ought to, it ought to be the aim of each one of us to be the neighbor that everyone knows and trusts. Peter's out of his comfort zone. I need to move on. He's also pushed out of his narrow theology. Do you notice Peter is arguing with God. God gives him this vision. This uh, sheep comes down from heaven with all these animals and God says, take and kill and eat. No, God, I don't do that. These are unclean. And God says, no, don't call anything I've made unclean. And Peter argues with God. This, this God is too big. For Peter's theology, God's goodness and creativity and his grace are far bigger than Peter could have imagined. The reality of God is bigger than the theology of Peter. And the reality of God is bigger than the theology of any church. Now don't misunderstand me. Of course sound doctrine is important. And of course it is important that we honor the word of God and give it central place. And of course, you can't make up anything and, and just stick a Christian label on it. I'm not pleading for that kind of woolly, hazy thinking. I am pleading for a recognition that nothing we can say about God is as big as God. I'll tell you when to beware. We need to beware when churches major on their denominational or doctrinal distinctives. You know, when people start to say, well, what makes us different from other churches? Well, who gives two hoots about that? The people out there certainly don't. They want to see Jesus. 
And, and they're really not awfully interested if, if me and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Anglicans and the Pentecostals have different nuances of doctrine. They're not really worried about that. They want to see Jesus and they need to see Jesus. And, you know, when, when churches that want to be different and Christians who want to be different from other Christians, you know, people who want to be different usually end up by being eccentric, don't they? You, know, you want to be different? Um, wear your shoes on your head. I'll make you different, but nobody will talk to you. Tell you what we need to be aware. We need to be aware when mission becomes more, sorry, when mission becomes less important than maintaining the status quo or guarding our purity by avoiding contact and contamination by the world around us. I remember somebody once saying to me, uh, in, 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 uh, an elder in the church where I was the, I was the, I was the pastor, and he said to me, I know what you're trying to do here. And we'd seen the congregation go from about 250 to 350. He said, I know what you're trying to do, but I want, and I can remember his phrase exactly, I want to preserve an expression. I want my kids to find exactly the same church that I did. The fact that a hundred new people had come meant that it was a different church. John Wimber has a great story. He took over this little Quaker church in America that went from, from I think, about 100 to 400, and it was really buzzing. And one morning at the end of the services, he's doing the handshake, a lady screamed at him, you've ruined my church. And he said, actually, she was right. I had ruined a nice little church because it becomes something bigger and more welcoming. See, she wanted to keep it like it was. That's not a, our job is not to guard the church. Jesus Christ will take care of his church. Our job is to share the gospel. So Peter welcomes the three messengers from Cornelius. They share food and they spend the night under the same roof. Again, good Jews didn't do that. But Peter, as he later tells Cornelius, has learned that God accepts men and women from every nation who fear him. God is bigger than Peter ever, had ever imagined. I must stop soon. One last thing. God is leading Peter in a new direction out of his natural authority. Now, this is Peter. This is the leader of the Jerusalem church. This is Peter who made the great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, on that great statement of faith that the church is founded. And this is Peter that you would expect to say, well, here I am, I'm settled at the house of Simon the Tanner. If Cornelius is really serious about the gospel, tell him to come down here and meet me. What actually happens is that Peter traipses the 35 miles up to Caesarea a not inconsiderable distance, taking some fellow disciples with him. And when they enter the house of, of Cornelius, Cornelius falls at his feet in front of Peter. This is a Roman centurion. And Peter might well have stood there and said, you are right, I represent the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are right to kneel at my feet. Peter says, yeah, I'm just a man. And then what Peter does is to confess his humanity, saying, God's teaching me new stuff, Cornelius. This is the leader of the church. This is the man who made that great statement of faith. Cornelius, I'm still learning. There was a time when I wouldn't have come to your house. But I am here. 
And then he asks Cornelius, why have you sent for me? And after he's listened, then he shares the gospel. So let me finish by saying this. We've looked at Peter's critics who are trapped in their own traditions. We've looked at Peter who's discovering new directions. Let's look at Thomas Risley Church and the church at Lim. And let's say, what are the models for mission that we can learn from this? Number one, we go on their patch. We go onto their patch. You know, we've been asking the wrong question for most of my life. You know the question, the default question we ask? Now, it's not a bad question, but it's the wrong question if it's the only one you ask. We've been asking, how do we get people to come to church? Well, actually, it seems that most of them ain't coming. I'm really glad you're here. And I hope this church grows and grows, and I hope it's twice and three times and four times the size. But the question, how do we get people to come to church, is not a New Testament question. Jesus did not say, uh, find ways of inviting them to come. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Peter goes on to his patch. We've got to find ways of getting on to other people's patch. Churches used to do it in the past by open air services. They're not quite, they might work some places, but they're not quite, they don't do what they used to do. So how do we get onto other people's patch? How do we get alongside our neighbors and our friends? Here's the second thing. Peter acknowledges his humanity. We need to acknowledge our humanity. People need to know we're human. We're not odd. We're actually the same as you. Yeah, we're not trying to be, we are the same as you, we're just ordinary folk. Here's the third thing, Peter admits, we need to admit our weaknesses. Do you know one of the things that keeps us back from sharing the gospel? I think I've got to know the answer to every question they ask me. No, you haven't. In fact, there's nobody, to put it bluntly, there's nobody gets up your nose more than somebody who knows the answer to everything. (laughs) They're such a pain in the neck, aren't they? You know, I have to say sometimes to people, I don't know why. One of the worst moments recently was when I heard a leading churchman following the Haiti disaster on uh, speaking on the radio, trying to explain why it had happened. For goodness sake, apart from the geological explanations, when people ask the big question, how does that happen under a loving God? I can give them some answers, but the best answer is, I don't actually know. But what I can do is to show you God's love now. You don't have to know the answer to every. You don't have to know the answer to every question about the Bible. The Bible's a big and a difficult book, and some bits of it are a bit tough. And it's okay to say that. Some of the bits I, I, I have to struggle with. I'm still learning them. It's okay to tell people I don't know the answer to everything. Notice what happens next. Peter asks questions, and he listens. We have not been good at listening. My kids once said to Margaret, trouble with dad is he knows the answer before you've even had time to ask the question. <laughs> we need to, you know, we need to listen. We need to listen to the world that we live in. See, we say it's a world that doesn't care about God. Are you sure about that? Why is it that all over the place when there's been an accident, I see those little shrines? 
What's that if it's not a longing for God? Sure, a lot of it is confused, and some of it is downright crazy. But, but people, you know, we've got to listen to some of the stuff that people are saying. Because maybe they've had some kind of encounter with God, and maybe what they need is that we help them understand that encounter. Here's the last thing. Talk about Jesus. That's what Peter does. When he's gone through that, he then says, okay, let me tell you. I want to tell you this. For 18 months, I was the chairman of Hope 08 in Greater Manchester, which got me involved with all sorts of churches. You were involved with Hope. It's great. Do you know what we found? It isn't difficult to get churches, in, especially evangelical churches now, it isn't difficult to get them involved in, in service product, uh, projects. You know, they, they'll, do, they'll do the fun day, the family fun day. That's a good thing to do. And they do parent and toddlers clubs and all those good things. I was looking at your website and you do all sorts of good things like that. They're good. They're good and they're important and we should go on doing them. But you know what we've got bad at? We just don't know how to talk about Jesus any longer. We've lost our confidence in talking about Jesus over a cup of coffee in a nice, unreligious sort of way, just talking about Jesus. You know what? When we go into people's patch, when we acknowledge our humanity, when we admit our weakness, and when we're willing to listen, they might just listen to us. I'm going to unpack that all a bit more in this afternoon's session. I hope you're able to come. It would be lovely to see you if you are. Um, But it is the big challenge for us. How do we share the gospel? Because if we don't do it, nobody else is doing it. And it won't be done by the Billy Grahams of this world or the Lewis Palows of this world or or the Steve Chops of this world or the Jeff Lucases of this world. It's you and me. Well, guys, we've got to do it. Dear God, thank you that your word is a powerful open book. And thank you that even the most inadequate and ineloquent of preachers can't mess it up totally. And your word speaks to us with clarity. I want to just ask this morning that you will light a fire in the heart of each person here from Thomas Risley Church and from the church at Lim, that you'll light a fire in our hearts that will burn bright with a desire to live and share the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.